0: arc of scripture, beginning with creation, um, and the fall in the garden, um, the disobedience of Israel, and then the redemption through Jesus Christ. just kind of walks through the whole thing. And at the end, I said, um, you see, Adeline, we ran away from God, but Jesus came to bring us back to God. And she goes, I didn't run away from God. I was like, well, I mean, did you and mommy run away from God? (laughs) Yes, actually, Adeline, me and mommy—did Pastor Bart run away from God? <laughs> Even Pastor Bart ran away from God, Adeline. And um, but you know, it's really like when she and then she goes, "I don't think I ran away from God." I was like, "Well, it's more like we ran away from God in our hearts." that we decided we wanted to be in charge, and we didn't want God to be in charge, and we wanted to do the things that we wanted to do, even if that meant not doing the things God wanted to do, and that's running away from God in our hearts, and, she, and she's like, okay, in our hearts, and I was like, well, it's, it's really like when a kid steals a toy from another kid, and then that that brought it home. I feel like whenever I'm trying to explain sin, if I don't talk about toys being stolen, it just doesn't compute at this point, but I'm, I'm you know, we're raising Adeline to understand this idea of sin, right? Raise your hand if you, uh, were, you grew up in a household with at least one Christian parent or one Christian primary caretaker. Okay, so the great majority of the people in this room, um, I, like, like many of you, was taught about sin from my parents and from the church in Orlando in particular when I was really young. Uh, taught me about, about sin. And I, I accepted the notion that I was a sinner and never really questioned it um, at any point at all. Now, we're growing up in a society now that's increasingly post-Christian where many people do not grow up being taught this idea of, of sin, of offending a God with our actions. Um, if you're, in the past few years, I, I've been teaching at Highlands College, and I've had this kind of informal survey that I've conducted where I'll ask a class, um, raise your hand, same question, if you grew up in, or sorry, the question is flipped. I'll say, raise your hand if you did not grow up in a Christian household um, or grew up in the church. And so I assume, you know, most of the kids then became Christians at the beginning of college or in high school, that kind of thing, outside the church. And maybe 20% of the class would raise their hand, and I'd, just, I'd call on each, on each of them. And if they were willing, I'd just say, hey, tell me about um, your conversion experience, if you will, and almost every time, the, they primarily described—again, kids who did not grow up in a Christian home—they primarily described their conversion in terms of, "I was, I was empty, and I was searching for meaning in life. I was searching for something of worth, something of of significance. Um, something I wanted to be a part of something bigger than myself. You know, the community of faith. I wanted. These are the things I wanted." Um, I wanted more. Basically, almost all of the descriptions were that. And the only kids in the class who primarily described their conversion to Christ in terms of, I was a sinner and I desperately need forgiveness for my sins. I wanted to go to heaven and not hell and receive forgiveness for my sins. The only kids who primarily described their conversion in those terms were the kids that grew up in the church. And I just thought that was fascinating. And that was borne out over and over and over and over again. Now let me say this, it it may be the case that these days people, the initial appeal to Christ is different for those outside the church than for those inside the church, but at some point for it to be real, people have to come to a place where they understand they're a sinner and they're desperately in need of forgiveness, of mercy. Psalm 130 in these beautiful words, let me see if it will come for me says, if you, O Lord, should mark, actually, let me go back one. Okay, Um, can you go back to verse one for me? Thanks, thanks, Zach. Oh, is there no verse one? Okay, Um, well, we'll read verse three and four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Um, And I guess I had them out of order Here we go. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your uh, ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy, which is incorrectly noted under Luke uh, 19. (laughs) Um, I long to see this, this cry for mercy, the the conviction of the Holy Spirit over our sin, um, that we would be lovers of mercy. And let me just say this to you. I mean this, of course, in gentleness. Um, You mustn't sing worship songs about God's mercy and live as though you have no need of it. If you love mercy, that means you welcome the conviction of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the gateway into drinking in the mercy of God for yourself on a daily basis. Will you trust the, the great physician with your soul? You are his handiwork, Ephesians says. God has his hands all over you. He's all up in your business. And his touch is unbearable for those who despise mercy. But every touch is life for those who know they perish without it. So let's turn to our text today, which is Luke 7. And I'll begin in verse 36. This is a beautiful story of the woman, the sinful woman anointing Jesus' feet. Let begin reading for us. Now, when the Pharisee had inv- who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. And turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he it is who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Simon in this story determines Jesus can't be a prophet because if he were a prophet, he, wouldn't, he would know who's touching him. And prophets of God don't let prostitutes caress their feet. Seems right to me. And so he's going, surely he's not a prophet, right? He'd know, if he was, he'd know who's touching him. Well, Jesus knows a prostitute is touching him. And it gets worse than that. Jesus welcomes the physical touch of a prostitute. And if that didn't make you squirm in your seats a little bit, I don't know what will. But I'm going to say if it did make you squirm, good. That means you're entering the story. Because that's what we have before us here. But it gets worse than that because Jesus isn't simply a prophet, which is the highest title the Pharisee could afford him. Jesus is God. So Luke um, 7.49 says... Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who even forgives sins? And then this reminds me of just a few chapters earlier. Luke chapter 5, verse 21, we hear these words. um, And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's the story of the paralytic that I actually got to preach on a month or two ago, where the same question comes up. Who is this who forgives sins? Um, And in that story, Jesus basically responds by saying, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And then the paralytic did exactly that. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, has already shown That when Jesus forgives sins, Jesus is demonstrating that he's God. As the careful reader of Luke, you already know that by the time we get to Luke 7. Jesus is demonstrating his divinity in this moment as this woman is touching him. I think my clicker died. Let me pull up my app real quick. Let's see. So, now it's one thing for Jesus to forgive the sins of a good Jewish man, the paralytic, in Luke chapter 5. It's a completely different thing for Jesus to forgive the sins of this woman who's a prostitute. I mean, the man in Luke chapter 5 was well-loved, so much so that he had these devoted friends who would stop at nothing to see him healed, literally tearing open a roof to get to Jesus. The woman could not be more alone and forsaken in the world as she is here. And yet Jesus forgives her too, even though her touch even is seen as toxic, but not to Jesus. To him, her touch is filled with holy love. We should probably say at this point that there's nothing sensual about what this woman is doing in this moment. In fact, she's desperately hoping to be forgiven of her sensuality. We can guess at that because that's at least how Jesus interprets her actions. She doesn't ask for forgiveness, but he says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven for what you have done. Poor Simon in this scene. I mean, he is kind of going, how do I make sense of this? I mean, everything he thinks he knows about God is just being decimated in this scandalous act before him. Um, I mean, as the readers of, of the story, though, we're kind of going, okay, we're being beckoned to see the love of God in the face of Christ Jesus here, though. Because if, in fact, Jesus is God, if, in fact, he is the image of the invisible God, this story is almost too much to take in, isn't it? I mean, if Jesus as the Son of God is the exact imprint of God's nature, then this woman's got to be one more tear away from a lightning bolt, right? I mean, if Jesus and the Father are one, then surely this woman's about to get smoked. I mean, she's about to go the way of Uzzah, who just, in good faith, tried to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant when it was falling off of an ox cart. She's touching something far holier than the Ark of the Covenant here. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God, essentially, on the earth. And, this, and people, people died touching it while well-meaning. And yet this woman is here touching Jesus. Granted, the woman you know, is here. And as the readers of this passage, we know more than Simon does in this moment. Um, but what's really happening in this scene is the God of Israel is letting a prostitute caress his feet. If Simon knew what was really going on, he'd have a panic attack right there in his own home. Nothing in Simon's theology could have prepared him for this truth. God is receiving the kisses of a prostitute. But this prostitute is closer to the kingdom of God than he is. She knows Jesus forgives sins. Her love is on display. And Simon's love is nowhere to be found. Let me put up, um, if I can find it here. Let's see. Yes, verse 41, there we go. So basically, just a little lead into this. um, All Simon can see is just how inappropriate this scene is. That a a prostitute would be touching uh, a would-be prophet And that's all he can see. And so Jesus basically gives this short little story to help Simon see that there's nothing sensual about what's going on here. This is about holy love. And and in doing so, he he compares the love of the woman to the love that a debtor has for his moneylender, right? To show, again, there's nothing truly sensual about this. So, verse 41 says a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. The other... 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. So here we have this scene. And this parable is, is so simple, and the answer to Jesus' question, which one will love him more, so obvious that it's borderline patronizing, actually, isn't it? Which I think is intentional. Um, and so Jesus says, which one will love him more? The answer is absolutely obvious. And then Jesus' next statement um, about how Simon has shown Jesus none of the kindnesses that this woman has shown Jesus is intended to help Simon see himself as the man in the parable who owes 50 denarii. We might say it this way. Simon, you're like a person who owes 50 denarii, which was about two months' wages. The, common, the denarii was a, the wage given for a day's work for the common laborer, which was almost everybody. And he said, you're like a person who owes about 50 denarii. This woman is like someone who owes 500 denarii, two years' wages. What makes the both of you similar is that you both owe a debt you cannot pay. That's what makes you the same. What makes you different is she recognizes her debt and you don't. Verse 48 says, And he said to her, Your sins. Are forgiven. I want to say this real quick. I'm concerned that us, I make we, and I put myself in this with both feet, as church people can hear sermons on forgiveness and, and the forgiveness of God even, and it kind of be this, we have this response of like, oh yeah, that's what God does. Like, He's a forgiving God. God forgives. As though God is this kind of moneylender who has to forgive all of his debtors. And it's just, it's just what God does. God has this kind of obligatory forgiveness-like output that he just must respond to or something. And, and in doing so we truly cheapen the forgiveness of God. God does not have to forgive. In fact, there's a lot of places in the Bible where God does not forgive sin. I don't know if y'all know this. Um, but it's Actually, all over the place. God not forgiving sin. Before we do that, I want to show this video. Um, this is a video of the Ukrainian president uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Listen to this that he gave an address a few weeks ago to the people on Forgiveness Sunday.
1: Ukraini, день, коли ми завжди просили пробачення. один в одного у людей у Бога, але сегодня Здається, багато хто не згадав взагалі про цей день. Не згадав обов'язкові слова «Пробач мені» і обов'язкову відповідь «Бог пробачить, і я пробачаю». Здається, ці слова втратили сьогодні сенс. Принаймні, частково, після всього, що ми пережили. Ми не пробачимо розстріляних житлових будинків, Ми не пробачимо ракету, яку наша протиповітряна оборона збила сьогодні над Охмедидом. І ще більше 500 інших таких ракет, які вдарили по нашій землі, по Україні, по нашим людям, дітям. Ми не пробачимо розстріли беззбройних людей, руйнацію нашої інфраструктури. Ми не пробачимо. Сотні сотні жертв, тисячі й тисячі страждань, і Бог не пробачить ні сьогодні, ні завтра, ніколи. І замість прощеного буде судний день. Я впевнений в цьому.
0: There you go. God will not forgive. Zelensky says. Um... Now, in case you're sitting there listening to Zelensky say that and kind of going, Oh, I understand, like, you're in crisis and you have lost so many friends and family in this conflict, but, like, God forgives Zelensky, so, like, calm down. Like, we know God forgives. Um, Zelensky's not totally wrong. There's a lot in the Bible about God not forgiving sin. Let me give you a few examples. 2 Kings, 24, Which, by the way, Zelensky is basically saying God will not forgive the innocent blood spilt, right? Well, surely this... Okay, by the way, this is, this is the judgment of Babylon upon Judah. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord will not forgive The Lord will not pardon. Speaking of idolaters in Deuteronomy, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Joshua, calling the generation to holiness as he's passing on, said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And before you think, oh, well, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Matthew six fifteen. but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I think it's important that we don't have this really cheap view of God's forgiveness. God will not forgive, Moses wrote, and Zelensky said. God does not forgive every sin because not every sinner seeks God's forgiveness, is what it ultimately comes down to. And I think that that is important that we have in mind that God doesn't throw out forgiveness like candy. And anytime we preach a gospel that basically says something like that, we have mellowed down the forgiveness of God. The forgiveness of God is precious to the prostitute in Luke 7 precisely because it's such a treasure to be forgiven by a holy God. And I I pray that God's forgiveness over your life and your sins is just that precious. Jesus was asked, um, as we, as we prayed today, um, how do we pray by his disciples? And Jesus said in, the, in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, uh, when you pray, say, Father, forgive us our sins. How often should you ask for God's forgiveness? I don't know. As often as you ask for daily bread? As often as you ask for God's will to be done on the earth? about that often? Because it sets you in a place of gratitude, of profound gratitude before the Lord. It's not something you say one time when you prayed a sinner's prayer at the age of six at the altar, and then you never ask for forgiveness after that or something. Um, It places you before the Lord, and if that's a part of your regular prayer life, then you are in a holy place with him before the Lord. Why? So that we just feel bad all the time? No, so that you fall more in love with Jesus. That's actually the point of this story. The one who's forgiven much, what? Loves much. The woman sought forgiveness, and she sought this forgiveness in faith. He said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. P.T. Forsyth, uh, a Christian thinker, talked about his escape from more liberal, classical forms of Christianity, uh, classic liberal Christianity um, from the 18th and 19th centuries, which really downplayed human guilt and personal sin. He talked about how God brought him out of that, those liberal forms of Christianity, and he said this in response, it pleased God by the revelation of his holiness and grace, which the great theologians taught me to find in the Bible, to bring home to me my sin. I love these words. I was turned from a Christian to a believer, from a lover of love to an object of grace. You know, if personal sin doesn't matter all that much, then what are we left with? Well, the answer is this Christianity basically becomes a celebration of love. Jesus is, of course, the prime example of love to us. We want to be like that man who lived 2,000 years ago. You know, we're inspired by love. We're lovers of love. But if, in the words of P.T. Forsyth, your sin is brought home to you, then you begin to see yourself as the object of God's grace in Christ Jesus, the forgiven one, the guilty one, now the forgiven one. And then you are propelled into love. And that's what we see in this story, right? The woman pushes past the scornful glares, kneels down at Jesus' feet, pours out the alabaster flask of ointment, weeps all over his feet, wipes her, the, the tears and ointment across his feet with her hair. And the, you know Simon says, who is this? I mean, if, if he was a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman this is who's touching him because she's a sinner. Simon, I've got something to say to you. Say it, Teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed two years' wages, the other owed two months' wages. When neither could pay their debt, he forgave them both. Now which of them do you think will love him more? Well, I suppose the one who he forgave the larger debt. You've judged rightly, Simon. You see this woman right here? When I walked in, you gave me no water for my feet, and yet she's washed my feet with her tears. When I came in, you gave me no oil for my head, that she has anointed my feet with ointment. When I came in, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I was here, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Therefore, I'll tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. For he it is who's forgiven little, loves little. They said amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven you. That's how we fall in love with Jesus. Not as lovers of love, generically speaking, but as objects of grace. Have you been brought home to your sin? Are you a lover of love or an object of grace? Because the more you see yourself as an object of grace, the more your capacity to love God and neighbor will explode. Have you been brought home to your sin? We could ask another question. Are some people greater sinners than other people? Well, the simple answer is yes. Jesus acknowledges that in this story. Some people are 500 denarii sinners. Other people are 50 denarii sinners. Maybe you identify more with a prostitute. You've made shipwreck of your life and run headlong into darkness. Maybe that's where you are today. Or maybe you identify more with a Pharisee. You're a good 50 denarii sinner and proud of it. And you got this, you know, sin management routine in place that keeps you from committing the most heinous of sins. Or maybe you're somewhere in between the 500 and the 50. Regardless, I think questions like the one I'm about to put on screen are really the most helpful. Think about it for a moment. Why do you think, why is it that receiving Christ's forgiveness of a sin debt you can't pay leads you into deeper love for Jesus? I'll give you my answer in a second, but think about it for yourself. There's probably lots of truths layered in here. Um, but what came to my mind is that when you are in debt to someone, every act of kindness and every gift you give them is inescapably going to feel like a kind of repayment. Right? So, I mean, let's say someone owes you two years of their annual salary. But one day, they show up at your house, and they drop off a friendly note and a freshly baked loaf of babka. And you like the babka, it tastes good, but you can't help but forget the fact they owe you two years' salary. And then the person driving away is like, I kinda feel good about myself that I dropped off the babka, but at the end of the day, I still owe them a mountain of debt that I could never pay back. Is that babka a gift? I mean, yes, it is, but with an asterisk, right? But what happens to that babka when it's dropped off on the doorstep of someone who's forgiven all your debt? Suddenly that babka is a true act of free love. Suddenly that gesture is free. That's what God has done for you in Jesus. He has liberated your works. Now your works for God are noble. Now your works for God have dignity to them. Now every act of loving devotion you offer to God is your free gift to him. Every time you serve a needy person, you do so out of gratitude and out of part of some divine repayment plan. Now every kingdom work you give to God is your free gift of love and worship to him. And as we go into this, over time, this loving Devotion to Jesus will mean that more and more, that you exert your will not primarily to please yourself, but you exert your will to please God. Guys, let's be people who just want to please God. Amen. That our, our greatest joy is to just please God with our words, our thoughts and our deeds. I have a really dumb story I'm going to share to try to illustrate this for just a moment. Um, so, so years ago, the year was 2006. I was 19 years old, and I just met Jordan Jarvis. And I remember a day I I was like into her immediately. And I remember a day I was just in conversation with some people, and. The person who said this wasn't even talking to me. They were talking to someone else, but like I immediately tuned in. And they, they made a passing comment that, yeah, Jordan, Jordan Jarvis, she is into guys with long shaggy hair. At that moment, I started a Nazarite vow. <laughs> and I decided I, I, I'm just gonna skip every haircut for the next several months and a few months later, I looked like this. I mean, it's like I'm squinting out of the helmet right there. I hated the long hair. Um, but it was like the second I found out Jordan's into dudes with shaggy hair, it wasn't even a question. I was like, yeah, if it gives me an edge, I'll I'll do it. Um, and then a few months after that, this is what I looked like. It, it, you know, now... <laughs> To my shame, three months into our marriage, I shaved it all off. <laughs> Got the girl. Um, that's for my illustration dies. But I was just whatever it, whatever I might do that could, that Jordan might like, I was gonna do it. Paul in Ephesians five ten said. Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. I love this verse. I've been meditating on this verse for the past few months. Um, Because what's fascinating to me about this verse is, in the context, Paul gives you several items that uh, please the Lord, particularly avoiding sexual immorality, impurity, filthy talk, uh, covetousness. Um, And then he makes this comment that uh, we should live as children of the light rather than Uh, those who live in deeds of darkness which is more vague Um, and then he just says you know what there's 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 obvious things like the ten commandments i feel like it goes without saying yeah do this to please the lord right and then there's other ways in which we're just asking the holy spirit lord what what's pleasing to you what, what is it? And then it's like we, we hear the sense from the Holy Spirit, this, this would please the Lord. How, how can I go about my day in this meeting, in this conversation, in this interaction with this person? What would please you, Lord? Like, that's how I want to live. Like, I hear things in passing from the Lord. Wait, what was that, God? And I jump at it. I love how T- Thomas Kelly said this. These words are so beautiful. For nothing else in all of heaven or earth counts so much as his will. His slightest wish, his faintest breathing, and holy obedience sets in. Don't you want to be this person who's leaning to listen? Paul says, discern what's pleasing to the Lord. There's the obvious things that I just said, like don't commit sexual immorality, And then there's the less obvious things, like the daily going about of a child of light, discerning things that please God in the moment. Leaning to listen. God's faintest breathing, saying, yes, Lord, I'm the forgiven one who was the guilty one, propelled into loving devotion. Guys, give your heart to Jesus. If you haven't yet done it as then do it today and if if you are already walking with Jesus, give your heart to him again. Offer yourself to him. You know, honestly, I don't know where I am in terms of being a a 500 denarii sinner or a 50 denarii sinner or a 1,000 denarii sinner, which is probably closer to the truth. All I know is that when I look into my heart, I see darkness and then I find God's grace. And then the more God Grace is poured into my life the more I pour out my love to Jesus. And the more I fall in love with Jesus, the less taste I have for sin. And the more I fall in love with Jesus, I want to be like him. And I acquire a taste for righteousness. And then the cycle repeats. I look back into my heart and I see darkness and I find grace and I'm propelled into love. It's that's the Christian walk. Grace teaching us to deny ungodliness as Paul says in Titus. I want to go and invite Craig and the team up. Um, and I also want to go ahead and invite uh, prayer ministry teams forward. If I could get five or six prayer ministry teams up front and maybe a few in the back. I want to invite us. I can pull a line from uh, Bart's playbook. If you will, let me have your attention for one more minute. I know people will be moving around me. Um, we're going to go back into worship together and create space for prayer if you would like it. This story from Luke 7 has always touched me, and I, I know I'm not the only one for whom that's the case. I was commenting to some people this week, you know, when I'm preaching, whenever I preach on a passage that is a common, well-known passage, I always have this acute sense that this passage doesn't belong to the preacher, Half the people in this room have had moments with the Holy Spirit in, a, in this passage where God has touched you and encountered to me. This story belongs to the people of God, like all of scripture does, of course, but especially maybe known ones like this. It belongs to all of us. And at least for me, one of the ways in which this story has always spoken to me is that it, it touches on something that I've been interested in, at least from my teenage years till now, which is how I become the kind of person who's hopelessly in love with Jesus, which has been the quest of my life. (laughs) And I feel like this story has it all. It has loving works expressed towards Jesus, washing his feet. It has love expressed through emotion, weeping. It has faith in salvation, your faith has saved you. It has single-minded devotion. This woman could care less what Simon and everyone else at the room thinks about her. All she cares about is what Jesus thinks about her. It has genuine repentance. By pouring out the ointment, she's effectively wasting what she was using to attract clients, thus burning a bridge to her former life and sin. It has... It has this declaration of peace from Jesus, go in peace. And then you have Jesus in this scene just drinking in her love and faith and work into motion in repentance, in single-minded devotion. Just loving every second of it, even though everyone in the room is saying he shouldn't be. But he is. He's just loving it. And it just makes me think, Lord, if you just welcomed this, if you just drunk this in from her, surely you want it from me. That's, that's what this story means to everyone in this room, is that Jesus just drinks in your faith, affection, work, devotion, repentance, he loves it. So as we go back into worship today, the team's gonna lead us. And I just wanted, if you want prayer, come forward. We have teams in the back and up front. Um, but let's just sit before the Lord and just pour out our devotion to him a few minutes before we close today. <laughs>
2: Teach my song.
3: Sing that chorus again to declare our need for God if you need prayer there are teams at the back that are open be a couple here at the front maybe you need prayer for healing God I need you to heal me today or maybe you need direction God I need you I need wisdom from you about the days ahead or maybe you need freedom in the Lord maybe you need the lifting of a burden the breaking of a habit or a way of thought or uh, some aspect of forgiveness to flow through you. Just go to someone and get prayer. Have them stand in the gap with you this morning as we continue to worship the Lord. Let's just sing that again of our need for him and just cry it from the depth of your heart, your need for him this morning. Just worship him as we continue.